after that, you can be seated. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. All right, you can be seated. Delighted to see you on this June Sunday. This is the time in our gathering where we sit under the preaching of the Word, submitting to it, cherishing it. Don't think sitting over the Word, analyzing, dissecting. Think sitting under the Word, understanding and receiving. You can also think getting the Word inside of you that it might explode out of you. That's, that's our goal here. I came back from my time in Africa positive that I was totally unqualified to preach on at least two subjects. One is greed and the other is suffering. Today we get to press into suffering. I'm standing here only because this isn't about me, but it's about these words. So may God give us grace to hear the words of Scripture, understand the narrative of Scripture, and receive it and have it actually begin to shape us as we go. Hear the verse with me one more time. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Father, there is something different about your words. They are eternally true. They have been inspired in a unique way by you. And so I pray that as your people, our lives would take shape from these words. I pray that you would visit us now, just this small crew, that we would understand, receive, think on, believe, love, the words of Scripture, and the gospel word that is in and beneath and around these words, that you might do this for your glory and for our good, that you would give us a vision this morning that our lives are not our own and our lives don't end when we die, but that we have been invited into eternal life by Jesus. And so the life that we live now means something. Uh, I pray that you would make these things clear in our hearts, that your grace would be with, with us. Hear my answer. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Um, All right, let me start with a a couple of questions that will help to frame this for us. Imagine if you opened up your laptop and Firefox, Google Chrome, whatever it is, popped open, and you got to the Yahoo homepage or the CNN homepage or the Fox News homepage, depending which one you would be more likely to visit. And the first story there featured was uh, an image of a Christian church like ours, only their Sunday service that day was being protested. And there was a photo of the sidewalk out in front of the church, and there were some people holding up signs with angry faces, and there were some slanderous things to say on those signs about that church, her leaders, her people, her doctrine, her culture, if you saw that, what does your first reaction tend to be? Do you immediately think, this is bad, something's wrong, this church must be doing something wrong, this conflict, this opposition, this controversy is probably a sign that something hasn't been right about the gospel life of that church. Or think if you opened up the Melrose Free Press this week and there was a scathing editorial of uh, Andy Rice, 
pastor of First Evangelical Church a couple of blocks over this way, and you read that article, what's your first and immediate reaction? Is it, oh man, Andy ended up in the paper? This is bad. He must be doing something wrong. He must have said something that he should not have, or he must not be loving the people in his city well. Or imagine if you saw a post on Facebook of one of the members of the the Seven Mile Road family, wherever they may be, and that post was attacking and had some very negative things to say about that person's words or life or character. What's your first reaction? Do you immediately go, this is bad, something's wrong, they must not be acting in the way that Jesus requires of them? Okay, think on this. When you see a church or a pastor or a Christian embroiled in a controversy, under attack, the target of complaint or criticism, do you immediately and only think something is wrong? Or do you think this church, this pastor, this Christian may be doing something very, very right? Very right. The big idea of our text today is the second one is often the case. And this is a very hard truth for us right here to get our minds around. We live in this very weird time, kind of post-Christian, Christian virtues have taken root in our culture. Many of them have been thrown away. Some of them have been held onto. And in our day, many believe that To be Christian primarily and exclusively means to be nice and likable and well-spoken of always by everyone. That if you are humble and you are gospel-centered, you will avoid conflict. That the true mark of a genuinely Christian church that is Christ-like and loving and holy, would be a controversy-free existence. Everybody would only and always appreciate her witness and her work. They're nice. You are especially susceptible to this temptation because you're a part of a suburban church. Uh, I've thought really hard and deeply on some of these things over the last three years since we've anchored a mission here in Melrose, I am convinced down in my bones that we can be and you can be holy, gospel-centered, beautifully Christian in a sub-urban context. We can do that. If we didn't think that was true, we should sell the building and we would all need to move. I believe that we can do that. But... The burbs come with some very distinct and unique temptations, and one of them is this. One of the highest virtues in the circles that you will be running in is go along and get along, and if people are not getting along, something is wrong. But the truth is that sometimes the holiest place to be, the right place to be, is actually right in the middle of a conflict where you are getting beat up for Jesus. That if we're going to be faithful witnesses to him, 
to his grace, to his power, to his love, to his justice and holiness, to his truth and his mercy in the coming years together, you may, we may find ourselves in conflict, in controversy. What I'm hoping to do today is to help everybody in here to see that that controversy or conflict could be a sign of sinfulness on our part, absolutely, but it could also be a sign of faithfulness and that the wounds or the the scars that we receive in difficulties like this are not to be repented of and they're not to be apologized for, but they're to be pointed to. They are noble and necessary and holy marks. They are actually part of the evidence that you, that we belong to Jesus. All right, let's work this text and see the context of it and see if that's what this is saying to us. Here's the text. We'll go pretty deep on this one verse together today. All right, this is a letter. Throughout this letter, Jesus' apostle Paul has been defending his apostleship. That's because this letter is the result of a conflict, of a fight. Legalistic, false gospel, Jewish Christian evangelists had come into the cities that he had preached the gospel in, and here's what they were telling the people in these churches. You guys, I know that you love Paul, and I know that you guys are best friends forever, BFFs, and I know that you you believe that he was sent to you by Jesus with a gospel of grace only, but you got to listen to me. Paul is not an apostle of Jesus. Paul is not a true teacher. Please, you need to listen to us and stop listening to him. That's what they were saying. And so in this letter, Paul is forced to defend his apostleship. He hates to do it. He's so embarrassed that he has to do it. But he says, okay, look, I'm not playing here. I was really sent by Jesus with the good news of gospel grace. I am for real. I am a true teacher. Now at the very end of this letter, with this last verse, he puts forth one final defense, one final vindication, and he says, if you want to know if I'm true, if I'm legit, if I'm real, if I stand for Jesus and with Jesus here, I'll show you. And then he does something very penetrating, very uncomfortable, very intense. And what he does with his words is, in effect, he takes his shirt and he lifts it like this. And he takes his finger and he points. And what he points to is grotesque and hard to look at. He points to his body, to his back. And he says, do you see the scars? the marks. There is your proof that I have been a true teacher. I have taken a beating for the sake of the gospel. Okay, so feel the intensity of these words. Here's how he says it. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Okay, a few things I need you to feel here. One is, can you feel how exasperated he is? This is the end of the letter, and he's just spent. He's so tired. He's done. Have you ever done work that was 
not just physical work or mental work, but emotional work also. You know how that's exhausting in a different category? So like you dig a ditch, maybe your traps hurt, whatever. You try and prove that a triangle has three sides in geometry. Some of you need a nap after that, but it's just mental work. It doesn't affect your soul. That's not what was going on here. That's not what writing this letter has been like. This has been emotionally exhausting. Uh, this is what I felt like on the plane ride home from Dar el Salaam to Amsterdam to Boston last week, coming home from Africa. We had worked so hard preaching and teaching and loving and serving and listening. We traveled something like 50 plus hours across seven time zones and slept in an elementary school bunk bed. By the time we got home, all of that work, we were just exhausted. Why? It was physical and mental work, but it was spiritual, emotional work. And that work was done among friends who were so excited that we were there. That's not the case in this letter. Paul is dealing here with people who wanted nothing to do with him, both his opponents who wanted him dead and even his people who were fading away from him and from his gospel. And so I need you to feel that writing this letter was emotionally exhausting. And so now he's writing the last part. It's with his own hand in big, big block letters. And he says, I'm done now. I'm finished. You know where I stand. Enough of this. I don't want to hear any more accusations. I don't want any more back and forth. From now on, I don't want to hear another word from anybody about whether or not I am a true apostle. I'm done. But not done like I'm giving up done or I'm throwing in the towel done or you win done. This is more like a rap battle when the guy just drops the mic and walks off done. Nothing else to say. Okay, there are three of us who have ever seen a rap battle in here, so let me change the analogy. You ever seen an athlete who was under attack that week in the newspaper? You know, he, he's a bum, he's overpaid, he's, he's old. And then in that game, he goes out and hits a grand slam home run in the bottom of the ninth. And then he doesn't show up at the press conference. What's he saying? I'm done. I got nothing else to say. You see the ball in the stands? Stop. Stop. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm done. I have no need to show you any more proofs. And where is it that he is grounding his final defense and crescendo of the legitimacy of his ministry? Where does he ground it? He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These are very intense words. So this verb bear means to carry, uh, to, to shoulder The idea is that the object that you are carrying is very weighty, very bulky, very burdensome. We're trying to get a basketball hoop in our backyard so we can stop bothering the neighbors and banging up their car. And so this week, Matt and I bought 30 50-pound bags of cement up all those flights upstairs to our house. He was fine because he's 13, but for me, by the end of that, I was just like, Number 30, heavy, exhausting burden. And I was so happy to put it down and just tell the whole house, done, I'm done. Paul says, no, I bear 
permanently. I carry around with myself for the rest of my life this heavy, heavy burden. And what was that burden? He calls them marks. In my body, marks. That's the word stigmata. You might have heard it before. In in Christian history, it's taken on the narrow meaning of the marks of Jesus, the holes in his wrists and his feet and his side. But the word just generally means wounds that have left a mark or scars, brands that you would be tattooed with, iron, thick, deep, ugly, intense marks. When I coached high school basketball, I had a friend who was coaching against us at Lynn Tech, wonderful coach, incredible recruiter, took his team to the Boston Garden several times. When he was a kid, he survived through a terrible fire in the apartment that they were living in. And when you see him, you see the scars all the way down his face from here, very deep wounds from the fire. You see him and right away you know, okay, this guy has been through something. This is what it was like with Jesus' apostle. He shows his back and right away they know, whoa, this guy has been through something. What he's alluding to is the marks or the scars that he received in his church planting, gospel preaching ministry. Everywhere he went, this man got beat up for Jesus. You can see this throughout the New Testament. If you go to 2 Corinthians 11, he is detailing some of this for us. Again, he's making an embarrassed defense of himself. And he says, okay, here's what I have endured. If you want to know if I'm real or not. Countless beatings. So I just can't get past those two words, like getting ready to preach this week. Countless beatings. In other words, think of something that you've just done a hundred times in your life, that you could never count up how many it's happened, right? How many times have you been to Kelly's? How many times have you watched American Idol? Praise Jesus, we've got a holy man in the front row. <laughs> Most of you are like, I don't know, a bunch. Countless, just so many that they just fade into your memory. That's what it's been like for me, he says. I can't even... So many times I've been opposed and in conflict. And then in that text, he starts to delineate. He goes, whoa, 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 five times. I remember five of them. I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. That was the 39 stripes that they would give to someone. So that's 195 lashes and marks for Jesus. He goes, three times I was beaten with rods. I was sharing gospel grace. And they got out the stickball bats and went to work on me. Then he finishes the list with, one time I was stoned. Not even a skillful surgeon like his buddy Dr. Luke could remedy the terribly disfigured body of this apostle. What he does in this text is he points to those stories, those conflicts, those attacks, those marks that are etched in his flesh. And what does he say? He says that those marks, the fact that I have been in conflict, under attack, assaulted, scandalized, these marks are signs of what? Are they signs that he was not loving enough? Are they signs that he was not kind enough? Are they signs that he was not considerate enough? 
are they signs that he would have made a really bad suburban neighbor? Are they signs that he was a belligerent punk who just could not stay out of a fight? No. What does he say? He says, these marks are signs that I have been faithful. That I've been faithful. Okay, so that begs a very intense question. Why would he say that? Why is this the case? Why would scars from conflicts be signs that Paul had faithfully proclaimed the gospel? Here's why. It's because the faithful preaching of the gospel inevitably triggers two intense, opposite reactions. One of which is delight, but the other which is disdain. Okay, that truth is all over your Bible. Let's just look at one verse from 2 Corinthians where Paul, same writer, says it like this. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We'll get back to that in a second. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Okay, I love this metaphor that he gives us. He says that a church or a pastor or a Christian is like a wicked big giant air freshener. It's like a big can of Febreze. He says that as they live this life of repentance and faith and obedience, and as they believe the gospel and incarnate the gospel and say the gospel, as they, what, make Jesus known, spread the knowledge of Christ, make Jesus gospel grace known, he says, they give off a certain smell. The gospel has a smell like the new fragrance at Macy's called Gospel Grace. Ooh, that's distinct and unique. It's got a smell to it. You make Jesus known, you will have a distinct scent about your life and your church. And then he says this, by the Spirit, we are the aroma, there it is again, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, but to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Okay. In other words, if we are faithful in the gospel, we should expect two different reactions simultaneously. Some people will experience your life and our church as a sweet fragrance from life to life. They will love this place They will love this pulpit. They will love our people. Love it. I've got a friend who's a secretary at Revere High School, and she also sells Avon on the side. And so she's always got like insider access to all the newest perfumes and and body sprays and things. Whenever you walk into the high school main office, oh, you know right away, Rose is working. If you're having a bad day, you just show up in there, and as long as the Avon lady is in the house, that's a scent that you can enjoy. He says that this is what like the gospel is like for those whom the Spirit is, is gracing to believe it. It's everything they've been looking for. It's everything that they've been longing for. It's, it's everything that they need. 
This is like when I was 15 and I discovered the scent of Drakkar. That's it. That's the one. They want gospel to surround and inform every moment of their lives. So what happens when you talk orthodox doctrine with these people? They love it. What about when you talk holy gospel living with these people? They love it. I have sat across from young men at Kelly's, at Panera, at Starbucks, at Kappa's, and I have said things like, your sin is incredibly, incredibly bad right now, and you desperately need the grace of Jesus, and you need to start coming to church and stop fornicating and stop giving, and I have had men look at me and go, I'm in, I'm in, I can't believe this, I can't believe the mercy of Jesus. One guy signed up for online giving on his phone over pancakes. He was so excited about gospel truth and gospel response. Why is this? The gospel had become life to him. He wanted out of the darkness of sin into the light of Christ. Good news, you guys. That happens. Sometimes people smell gospel and they're all in. And they just want to wrap their arms around us and like, oh, I want to hug you. And we love that response, and we love that reception of the gospel. Good. But if that is the only response that you receive, that we receive, ever, hugs and kisses, I appreciate you, I affirm you. Say that only one of two different things is going on. Either one, we have arrived in heaven where everybody loves Jesus and his gospel, and that's what it will be like. There will be one scent of Christ and the knowledge of him like waters covering the sea, and everybody's going to dig it. But if we're not in heaven and you say this to me, there's only one other possible situation. It may be a sign that we are, you are not faithfully fragrancing Christ, making Jesus in all of his gore and in all of his grace and in all of his glory known. Here's how Jesus said this. It's just intense. He said, woe to you. Woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. Woe to you if everyone always and only appreciates and is a fan of you. Something is wrong if you have never taken a beating or received a mark for me. And that's because... Some people will experience the gospel not as a sweet fragrance from life to life. They won't. They will receive the gospel as an obnoxious stench from death to death. They will hate this kind of a place, this kind of a pulpit, this kind of a people. Horrible smell. So in our home right now, there's a 40-year-old and two middle schoolers who love to play basketball, but not necessarily to wash their socks all that often. So you may walk into the laundry room on a hot summer afternoon and smell death in that room. Like, did a family of raccoons crawl up here and commit suicide, and we haven't found them yet because there's death in this room. Uh, Grace is not a fan of those times. A couple of times she was like, I am not even washing these socks right here. These are going in the trash. That smell is horrific. 
I don't want anything to do with these socks. That's what the gospel is like for those who are staunch in their pride and in their unbelief. It is offensive. It is ridiculous. It is dangerous to the whole life that they have set up for themselves. It would mean death to the trajectory of their hopes and dreams. You say to them at Kelly's or Panera or Kappa's or Starbucks, man, you are a a sinner. Do you see that? And they go, how dare you say that to me? You say to them, the cross of Christ is our only hope for the forgiveness of sins and justification before a holy God. And they say, hate speech. How dare you say that? You say that your body is not your own, but it belongs to Christ. He's bought you with a price that you might live holy before him. And they say, don't you dare tell me what I can do with my body. They smell gospel and they are not in. They're out. They're not wrapping their arms around you with hugs and kisses. They're striking at you with words in other parts of the world, with weapons and with fists. That happens too. They both happen. And when that does, when we find that our church and our gospel communities, the lives of some of the saints in this room, please, but also provoke, it does not mean that you have done something wrong. It may mean that you have done something right. Right. If that provocation is because of identifiable sin in you and a lack of holiness, then that needs to be repented of. No question. But if it's just because we're doing a good job of fragrancing gospel grace, the seriousness of sin, the atonement of Jesus, and the life that is held out in repentance and faith and obedience, if that's why the provocation comes, we've got to be good with it. We have to be okay with it. Marks like that are a sign that faithful gospel ministry is happening. In fact, and this part's a little bit scary, but I need to say it. The truth is this. If this text is true or other text is true, the more solid that that our church becomes in the gospel the more faithful that we become in believing and living and loving and articulating the gospel in Boston culture, the more intense these two different reactions are going to be. In other words, if we're doing really well here, we should be seeing more and more openness and joy and delight. Our children and our neighbors should be coming to love the gospel of Jesus. But also, at the same time, more closedness, more irritation, more confrontation, more conflict, more controversy. It's just the way this works. And that means that our future together will be both more exciting, whoo, wow, and more exhausting and difficult. Than, than our past has been. 
there will be more repentance and hugs and joy and there will be more rejection and marks and angst. Jesus always has. Jesus always will trigger strong responses for and against. If we endure the against, it's evidence, not that we've done something wrong, but that we've done something right. Okay, that's the text. Let's just talk through a few applications. So one is this. Let me say this first. It doesn't mean that we want anybody running out of here and picking a fight with someone who is not a Christian so that you can get a mark on your back this week. Please don't hear that. As far as it is up to us, we are called to do what? To live at peace with everybody. We turn the cheek. That's us. We go the extra mile for the one who is assaulting us. That's who we are. We love and pray for and want the best for our enemies. That's us. I don't want anybody thinking that these texts means that we become the church that is constantly instigating theological brawls so that we can get some black eyes for Jesus and say, look, 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 see, look, that's not it. Courageous does not mean pugnacious, and faithful does not mean belligerent. Just stick to believing the gospel, and the hardships will come. We don't have to go and stir them up. It's not what we're saying. But here's what I do want you to do. Do go this week and look at your back. Do that. And if you see no marks at all, ever, no scars at all, ever, no irritation, no conflict, no uncomfort in any relationships that you have ever. Just think about that. Spend some time in the Word, spend some time with the Spirit, spend some time talking with your gospel community and assess why that might be. It might be that Jesus has just been kind to you and has not exposed you to serious opposition and you are living and believing the gospel. Great. Very, very few are called to suffer like Paul did, very few will be disfigured like that. But if there's never a mark, if a church like ours exists for another decade and there's never a controversy or a conflict or a rock thrown or something, I think it is cause for us to say, have we been faithful to fragrance the gospel of grace? That's an offensive fragrance that says that your sin deserves hell and that your only means of escape is the grace of God in Christ. Come and take it. That's offensive, making Jesus known. Ask, have I not done that the way I've been called to because go along and get along trumps faithful. When I say that I look at your back, I don't mean that literally, right? At other places, at other times, maybe with our children or their children. This will be a physical issue in our culture. But I don't only mean that the marks of Christ are physical. They may be financial. You may take a great hit financially because you stick close to Jesus and there's no compromise in you. That may be a mark that you receive. It may be. They may be reputational. You may lose your good name in some quarters, being faithful to the gospel. 
Internet's a scary place, right? Communication there is permanent and global. That means that you may bear a mark for Jesus that the whole world can see forever. It's okay. They may be familial, right? One of the hardest things about the gospel of Christ. Sometimes you lose a dad or a mom or a brother or a cousin or a child over faithfulness to the gospel. Whatever the case is, ask the Spirit, am I fragrancing your son in such a way that there's not only rejoicing, but there is also rejection? Just think on that. Another one, when and if you see our church or if you see someone in our church who is taking a beating for Jesus, let this inform your response. Don't immediately jump to the conclusion that something is wrong with that person or this is a church that I need to get out of. I need to abandon her. I need to abandon them. Don't immediately think, oh, this could have been avoided if we were just kinder, nicer, better people. Paul said you endure hardship like a good soldier does. I really don't see how we can be faithful in our cultural climate and not bear some marks for Jesus. It's just not possible. And I know that this is happening right now with Seven Milers in the life of this church. I know it personally. For some of you, it's at home. For some of you, it is at work. For some of you, it is at school. For some of you, it's about to be at school next semester. Gospel truth, loved by you, believed by you, is going to cause conflict, difficulty, controversy. When you see that in someone or we experience that as a church, don't abandon. Don't judge and say, something must be wrong. They may be doing something right. Don't ever be ashamed to stand with the one who is being marked for Jesus. That's the place where Jesus is standing. Okay, and then last one, don't be depressed about this. Be sober, but be glad. Don't ever think that you suffering or you receiving rejection or our church being hated by some means that the gospel is stuck or it's losing or it's failing. That's our tendency to think the beatings that we take means a pause in the advance of the gospel till we get through that. Wrong, wrong. The beatings are a part of the advance of the gospel. The marks are one of the ways that Jesus runs the gospel ahead. This is how Paul said it. This was at the start of the last verse that we did, and I'm coming back to it to end. He said, thanks be to God who in Christ always, always leads us in triumphal procession. How in the world does a dude who got the stickball bats three times and the 39 lashes five times and countless beatings plus a stoning say, always the gospel was advancing. Always the cause of Christ was moving forward. It's because whatever the response, delight or disdain, the gospel of Christ is accomplishing its work. Both of these responses are signs that Jesus is doing his thing. So when you see a church growing by hundreds and hundreds with baptisms and repentance, rejoice in Jesus that the fragrance of Christ is being received by the grace of God. But when you see a church shrinking in numbers 
and enduring, undergoing immense controversy and conflict and difficulty. Don't think these guys are winning. What's wrong with these guys? They're losing. Always, even in weakness and suffering, the gospel is advancing. I believe that Jesus is going to do both through us and through our churches here in greater Boston, that we have and will continue to experience rejoicing and receipt of the gospel, and there will be gladness in the advance of his cause. There's going to come times, there are times right now where the opposite is happening, and I need us to get a vision to rejoice even there and to say, yeah, these marks are heavy burdens, but they show that Jesus is the victor. And don't ever forget that when we inherit the kingdom of God, when we are welcomed by Christ, what will we see in his body on that day? What will we see? We will see stigmata, the marks, a permanent fixture on Jesus' resurrected body. When we see that, we should remember, as we plan to see that now, those marks are not a cause of loss or failure. They are marks of victory the marks of Jesus. So I'm going to pray that the Spirit would ready our souls, both to do well with the prospering of our work and rejoice in that, but to do really well with conflict, controversy, difficulty, that we may bear the marks of Jesus really well for His glory and show off that He has our hearts and we're not afraid to take a beating for Him. We do that in love, even for our enemies who would strike us so that the gospel might eventually win them over. All right, let's pray for that together. Father, you've got us here and now. There's a suburb outside of Boston. There is so much about your gospel and your truth that is disgusting and horrific and hateful and a stench in the nose of people who we love desperately and dearly. And so we understand that we may, we may be rejected. There may be provocation and irritation in loving the gospel. I pray first that you would steady our feet that we would stand firm in love and humility, but in courage for you. I pray that you would convince us that these marks show that something right is happening. Jesus was hated. A student is not greater than his teacher. There will be times when we will be hated as well. Father, I pray that it would never be because we are arrogant or proud or unloving, but always and only because we're holding fast to the, the Orthodox Christian gospel in all of its glory in all of its offense. I want to pray particularly today that you may take some of the enemies in our lives, some of those who have branded us, marked us, scarred us, wounded us, rejected us, attacked us. I pray good for them. I pray that you change their hearts and change their, their sense of smell, that the gospel would no longer be repulsive, but would be a sweet fragrance of life life. I pray that all these things, the glory of your son, the one who took marks for us that we might be forgiven, would be made known, and in it your glory would be made known as well. This is my prayer that you would answer, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for listening to that. We now come to Jesus' table.